Amen, huh? That's good. I like that song. Well, take your Bible and open to um, Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, I'm going to start in verse uh, 17 and read down through verse 21. Romans 12, verse 17. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For so in doing, you will heap burning coals upon his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. We are continuing, obviously, here on in our study in the book of Romans, the 12th chapter, and we're coming quickly, uh, quickly approaching the end of the chapter. Uh, and I think Romans 12 has been especially difficult. Uh, it's not difficult to understand what it says, but because it's laid out very easy for us to understand, I think the difficulty in Romans 12 has to do with what the text is calling us to do. That's where the difficulty lies. In Romans 12, God is calling us to practically live out who we are in Christ. God is calling us to truly demonstrate the fact that we are different, uh, that we are different persons in Christ. Uh, He's uh, calling us not to just make professions of uh, faith with our lips, but he, he really wants us to show the difference in the demonstration of our life. So he's actually calling us to live out the radical inward change that has occurred uh, in our hearts uh, through Christ. And, and I think Romans 12 has been somewhat of like a, uh, a trip to the heart surgeon. Uh, it's the word of God that is sharper than any two-edged sword that has laid open our hearts and exposes who we are and calling us to live who we should be uh, in Christ. So our hearts have been exposed by the word of God and God is calling us to examine uh, what we see and God is calling us to examine our life in light of his truth. And when we started at the top of the chapter, uh, we started at the foot of the cross, as it were. God is calling us to look at uh, all of life through his mercies towards us, uh, through what Christ has done for us on the cross. And God is calling us to see everything we do and every person we interact with through that lens of his mercy in our own lives. So God is calling us to live a life of complete devotion to him. Uh, to present to him our entire lives uh, as living sacrifices, wholly acceptable uh, to him, which is, Paul says, our reasonable or spiritual service of duty. And in light of that, and in light of all that God has done for us in Christ, again, God is calling us to continually renew our minds with the truth, the word of God, so that we might not be conformed or pressed into this world's mold, uh, into this world's system, but we might be transformed by his truth, proving or living out practically his good acceptable and perfect will. And God is calling us to live a life walking together in humility, using our uh, God-given gifts to serve each other in the body of Christ, to find ways to build it up in love. And again, in view of the mercies of God uh, towards us at at the cross, God is calling us to genuinely love uh, one another with all sincerity. To love one another with all sincerity, to hate what is evil, to cling to what is good, to be devoted to each other in brotherly love, to treat each other as if we are actually members of the same physical family. And because of God's mercies to us in Christ, 
God has called us to bless those who persecute us, to, to bless them and not to curse them. He's called us to rejoice with the rejoicing ones and weep with those who weep. He's called us to be of the same mind towards one another, to reject all forms of personal pride. And because of the mercies of God towards us in Christ, he's calling us to walk in faith. And again, faith is turning from self and becoming consumed with the person of Jesus Christ. As someone has said, faith is being self-forgettingly satisfied with the person of Jesus Christ. Right? Genuine biblical faith is to actually live out our lives in view of God's mercies to us, to practically, practically tangibly live out our lives consumed with and consumed by uh, the person of Jesus Christ. And when we live our lives that way, when we're consumed with, with Christ, the fruit of our life will be the overwhelming, or God's fruit in our life will be the overwhelming evidence of his mercies that we have um, contemplated and looked upon and, and are living in according to. The fruit of the Spirit will be overflowing in our life. And then when we look at the, uh, our lives in view of the cross, we're going to remember we're going to remember who we were apart from Christ. We're going to remember who we were before we were an object of God's mercy. Therefore, that has to radically affect us to the core uh, of, of how we live. When you look at the mercies of God to us through Christ, when you look at the cross, see who we were, see who we are now, that has to radically affect everything in our life. That will allow us to genuinely and sincerely enter into the joy of others. That will allow us to genu uh, genuinely and compassionately enter into the mourning with those who, again, are or mourning or weeping. It allows us to genuinely live in harmony uh, with each other, to be of the same mind, to reject all discord, all schisms, all divisions, uh, refusing to show partiality. When we're all living our lives together in the view of the cross, in view of God's mercies towards us in and through Christ, concerned with that person uh, of the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, that's going to allow us to be of the same mind with the same purpose, and that would be each and every one of us with the purpose of glorifying God, that, the purpose of glorifying Christ. Again, looking at the cross, overwhelmed with God's mercies uh, in our own lives, uh, consumed with the person of Christ, we will not be wise in our own estimation. We'll not be wise in our own opinion. Because the, the man who is wise in his own estimation or the man who's wise in his own opinion is somebody who's been conquered by pride. As I said last time, intellectual and spiritual pride is really a devastating thing. Uh, I have seen it wreak havoc in the lives of uh, people on a personal level uh, uh, who, who identify as Christians, and, and, and it just wreaks havoc in their life over and over again, and it's wreaked havoc in the history of the church throughout the, uh, the centuries because the wisdom of man and the wisdom of God are in complete opposition. So the man who's wise in his own estimation is a danger to himself and a danger to others, and there's a difference between uh, biblical wisdom and uh, false wisdom. In fact, put a little mark there and flip over to James. James chapter 3, it's kind of a, goes right with this whole section here, I think. James 3, verse 13. James writes this, verse 13 says, Who among you is wise and and understanding. Let him show it by his good behavior and his deeds in gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy, selfishness, and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant so as to lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder in every evil thing. But the wisdom from above is first pure, 
than peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering without hypocrisy. And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Uh, again, I think that's a tremendous portion of Scripture and a tremendous commentary on Romans 12, verse 16 that says, again, do not be wise in your own estimation. James says, look, you've got to make sure that you're safeguarding yourself you're protecting yourself from being that issue, that, that condition, from being wise in your own esteem, and your own estimation. Uh, uh, you've you got to learn the difference between true wisdom and false wisdom, and learn the difference between the wisdom of the world and the wisdom of God. Now, biblically, true wisdom is more than just acquiring uh, knowledge, the acquisition of knowledge, but true wisdom on a biblical level is really applying that which you know into your life. It's applying, applying what you know practically uh, into your life. And James says, if you are truly wise, then you will demonstrate that by how you live, by how you conduct yourself. Again, James says, who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds in gentleness of wisdom. James saying, look, if you have true wisdom, true understanding, again, you're going to demonstrate that by how you live. You're going to demonstrate it by the deeds of your, your life. You're going to demonstrate it by your conduct, by your behavior by your gentleness, by your humility of, of wisdom, because that's what comes, that's the fruit of true wisdom. The origin of true wisdom, he says, is from above. It comes from heaven. It's, true wisdom has its origin from God. That's what it says according to verse 17 in this text. But there is another kind of wisdom that people like to pass off as wisdom, and they think it's wisdom, and because they're so puffed up with pride, it's a false wisdom, and it's an earthly wisdom. And it never rises beyond a human or worldly level. Uh, James says you can tell the difference between these two kinds of wisdom by what they produce. Look at verse 14. He says, if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, and do not be arrogant, so as lie against the truth. James says, look, if you think you're wise, but you harbor bitterness or envy or jealousy, if you have selfish ambition in your heart, he says, don't be arrogant, don't lie against the truth, don't... Don't boast in false truth. Don't, don't deny the truth. This is not godly wisdom. Don't say if you're, these are your heart attitudes, a bitter jealousy, selfish ambition in your heart. Don't, don't say this is godly wisdom because it's not. That's just simply not true is what he's saying. Now, uh, where it says bitter jealousy, the word bitter uh, in the Greek is a word that was used for water that was not drinkable. So bitter jealousy really defines the heart that is uh, foul, polluted, a heart that is harsh and, and resentful towards others. The word selfish ambition, which is sometimes translated strife, refers to one who is self-seeking, uh, ones whose actions are antagonistic and factional. They like to bring division. Uh, and this person uh, uh, doesn't mind uh, bringing division in to accomplish his or her own agenda at any cost. And according to verse 15, this kind of wisdom harbors bitterness. It is a harsh, it is harsh and resentful towards others, James says. Verse 15, this wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, and demonic. So again, there are people who think they're wise. Again, they are wise in their own estimation. But James says, look, this is not really true wisdom. This is earthly, natural, demonic kind of wisdom. It's a false wisdom. Uh, again, earthly and natural, meaning that it's characterized by humanness. It's characterized by human frailty. 
it flows from an unsanctified and unredeemed heart. And also this kind of false wisdom is demonic, meaning it's really generated by the devil himself. Verse verse 16, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder in every evil thing. That's what this false wisdom looks like. That's what false wisdom acts like. It shows itself, again, in the demonstration of one's life, the actions of one's life. It shows itself in confusion of every kind of disorder and of every evil or vile practice. Especially in the context of the book, we don't have time to go into it, but especially in the context of the third chapter of the book of James, which demonstrates, uh, it talks about the failure to control one's tongue, and that's where, where you see these people who are kind of think they're wise in their own estimation, but they can't control their tongue. So as Christians, you're saying, look, you've got to be aware of this. We have to be aware of this kind of false wisdom. <clears throat> and again, we have to all, each and every one of us, remember this all applies to us too, right? The moment we become consumed or puffed up with ourselves, the moment we become consumed or puffed up with our own knowledge, our own learning, we make ourselves susceptible to this kind of a tragic outcome, this, this kind of a tragic result in our actions, in our conversations, in the words that come from our mouth. So again, the, the command is to make sure that we're not wise in our own estimation. Now, what does truism look like? Right? How does it act? How does it respond? What, where does it come from? Verse 17. True wisdom, right? Truism. The wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy, and good fruits unwavering without hypocrisy. Now, true wisdom, again, only comes from one place. It comes from above. It comes from heaven. It comes from God himself. God's the origin. And again, the wisdom that comes from God or the wisdom from above is first, James says, pure. It means it's without moral defect. It's without blemish. It has integrity on a spiritual level. There's nothing fake. It's morally sincere. The wisdom from above is first pure. Then, he says, peaceable. The wisdom from above loves peace. It seeks peace. It leads to peace. It flows out of a a humility and a meekness. Uh, Therefore, it's peace-promoting. The wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, then gentle. It's reasonable, it's considerate, it's gracious. It doesn't speak evil of anyone. It's not a quarrelsome, it's forbearing. And a person who has this kind of wisdom, the wisdom that comes from above, is one who, again, gently, with a great amount of gentleness, submits to all kinds of mistreatment. Always with an attitude of kindness, always with an attitude of courteousness. Uh, with, with patient humility. The, 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 wisdom, the person who has this kind of wisdom never has any thought of revenge or hatred. The wisdom from above, he says, is reasonable. It's teachable. It's compliant. It's easily persuadable to do the right thing. It's easily per, uh, uh, persuadable to submit to God's standards. The wisdom from above, James says, is full of mercy and good fruits, it's unwavering. This is the kind of wisdom that God has because this is the kind of wisdom that comes from him. This is the kind of wisdom that he bestows on his people, and it's a concern for others. It's full of mercy. It has the ability to quickly forgive. This kind of mercy, is, or this kind of wisdom is full of mercy. It's full of good fruits. It's unwavering. It has the desire and the ability to listen, to listen carefully, to consider the other person's viewpoint without partiality or prejudice. I always mention this when I'm talking on this kind of a subject. 
just by casual wave observation, we have two ears and one tongue, which probably means we should talk half as much as we do, right? We should listen more. And the wisdom from above is, is, is uh, full of mercy. It, it listens. It's quick to forgive. It has, a, it has a concern, a genuine concern for others. It has the ability, the desire to listen. To consider another person's viewpoint without partiality or prejudice. The wisdom from above, James says, is first pure, it's peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy. Good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy. It has a gentle love for other people. It doesn't pretend to be better than others. It doesn't pretend to be wiser or have more wisdom than others, than other people do. And James ends the section here in verse 18 uh, on godly wisdom by saying this, the seed of whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So those who are not wise in their own uh, uh, estimation but have true wisdom uh, that comes from above, they're peacemakers. They sow in peace and raise a harvest of righteousness, as it says in the NIV. That's somebody who has true godly wisdom. Gentle, reasonable, full of mercy, full of good fruits. They love peacemaking. So This is how you tell the difference between um, um, uh, true wisdom and false wisdom. Again, it's always by what it does. It's by what it looks like and how it carries itself. How it responds to others. False wisdom is always going to reveal itself. False wisdom is always going to come out. It can't be hidden. It's going to show itself in pride. It's going to show itself in envy and all kinds of bitterness and strife. Now, I think that kind of uh, excursion there into James helps flow right into what comes next. Uh, and it's somewhat of a commentary, again, like I said, on uh, verse 16 of uh, Romans chapter 12. But go back to Romans chapter, uh, chapter 12, and let's keep going forward here. Verse 17, as you go back to Romans chapter 12, in verse 17, this is where Paul lays out the duties that we have towards those who are our enemies. Again, because of the mercies of Christ, right? I told you, you might remember, I told you there's three ever-expanding circles uh, that Paul's been discussing, this section 9 through uh, 21. The first circle was the duties we have toward each other in the body of Christ. The second circle out was the duties that we have most likely to those who aren't Christians, but they might be because some people don't live rightly. And then the third circle out, the most distant one, is what are our duties, because of the mercies of Christ in our life, what are our duties towards our enemies? So from verse 17 to 21, Paul's going to give three main headings, uh, three main things that we are to do or how we are to deal with people who just flat out are enemies. Verses 17 and 18, he says the way to deal with them, uh, to, de to deal with those who are your enemies that are truly against you, is you live your life Again, in view of the cross, in view of God's mercies in your own life, you live as a peacemaker. That's the responsibility. You live as a peacemaker. Verses 19 and 20, the, the way we deal with those who are enemies, you leave room for God. And then verse 21, the apostle says, uh, the way you deal with those who are your enemies is you overcome evil with good. So be a peacemaker, leave room for God, and then overcome evil with good. So let's dive in here and kind of work our way forward and look at the the first one here in verses 17 and 18. So Paul says, look, this is how you deal with those who are truly against you. We're not, maybe, no, these guys are against you. Whoever this person is, right? They're against you. 
you live your life again in the view of the cross, in the view of the full mercies of God in your own life, you are again self-forgettingly satisf satisfied with the person of Christ. Therefore, God calls you to be a peacemaker. Verse 17, never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far it depends on you. Be at peace with all men. So again, what do you do with someone who does you wrong? What do you do with somebody who uh, really has done something evil against you? What do you do about it? Paul starts out and he says, you need to show that you're in Christ. He says, don't act like the natural man. Don't do what would... Don't do what you would really like to do. Don't do what you'd like to do in the flesh, what you'd like to do instinctively. And instinctively, when somebody does us wrong, we want to do them wrong, right? We want to hit them back. <clears throat> but Paul says, look, rather, Paul says, never pay back evil for evil to anyone. So again, our natural response, our instinctive response in the flesh is retaliate. If somebody does us harm, we retaliate. So again, what Paul's calling us here is to supernatural living. He's calling us to live in faith by faith. He's calling us to keep our eyes on the cross always, <clears throat> to keep our eyes on the mercies of God in our own life, and to live as we are as new creations in Christ. Because nothing but faith in Christ is going to enable us to overcome our natural disposition. Nothing but being consumed by the person of the Lord Jesus Christ is ever going to allow us to live the way that God is commanding us to. And a Christian is to love like his God loves him, right? A Christian is to, to love. And a Christian is to always represent his God in this world. So again, with our eyes firmly fixed on Christ, our eyes firmly fixed on the cross, our eyes firmly fixed on God's kindness and mercy in our own life, passionately consumed with the person of Jesus Christ, we are to actively demonstrate the fact that we belong to him. We're to actively demonstrate the fact that we have been transformed by him. We're to actively demonstrate the fact that we are indeed like him, like the one who saved us. So again, what Paul says here in Romans 12 is really nothing different than Christ's admonition at the Sermon on the, on the Mount, Sermon on the Mount, over in Matthew chapter 5. In fact, put your mark there, and now flip back to Matthew. Let's just take a look at that real quick. Matthew chapter 5. Diving in at verse 38. What Paul says in Romans 12 is exactly what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, verse 38. Jesus speaking, he says, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now, we don't have the time for me to go into a tremendous amount of detail, but Christ is really explaining here the true significance of the moral Contact, uh, content of the law of Moses from the Old Testament. The rabbis were the teachers of the law. They developed certain interpretations of the law, and Christ is coming here to give the true meaning. This is really what God means, not what the rabbis are teaching, but what God means. It was true in the Old Testament. It did teach an eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth, but the law was never intended as a means of personal uh, revenge. That statement was never meant as an, uh, uh, a means of personal revenge. It was actually an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth was actually a law that pertained to civil justice and its purpose was to prevent the severity of punishment from exceeding the severity of the offense. Never was it meant to be uh, a, a sanctioning acts of personal retaliation. So Christ has explained that here. He's trying to explain how do you deal with somebody 
who's violated your personal rights. Uh, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, verse 39. But I say to you, do not resist him who is evil, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn to him the other also. Now, again, this is not dealing with civil or criminal offenses. This is not like somebody, I mean, people get crazy on this. This is not like somebody's got a gun to your head, right, or some kind of military aggression uh, by, by another country. It's not what he's talking about talking about on a personal level what do you do when somebody violates your personal rights when your personal rights have been violated and christ is basically saying give them up surrender your personal rights verse 39 i say to you do not resist him who is evil but whatever slaps you on your right cheek turn to him the other also christ says look if somebody wants you to take the court let them verse 40 if anyone wants to see you take your shirt let him have your coat also Somebody wants to violate your personal liberty, liberty then let them do that. Verse, 44, verse 41, whoever shall force you to go one mile with him, go with him too. Somebody wants to take from you what you own, your personal property. Verse 42, give to him who asks of you and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. So what he's saying is a person who truly knows him, a person who truly knows Christ, a person who truly knows Christ has been freed from self-preoccupation. That's what he's saying. He's not concerned with his personal rights. He's concerned about Christ. He's concerned about making Christ look good always. So again, in verse 43, uh, the, the Lord uh, clarifies the teaching of the rabbis. Uh, he, he clarifies God's intent, God's true meaning regarding the issue of love. He says, you have heard, verse 43, you've heard it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemies. Now, the Bible taught in the book of Leviticus, you shall love your neighbor, but the rabbis taught it's okay to hate your enemies. But Christ comes and says, no, that's not true. That, that's not what God says. It's what the rabbis are teaching, but it's not what God says. That's not true love. It's not what love looks like. True love for your neighbor must extend to everyone, even those who are your enemies. Verse 43, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemies. Verse 44, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Why? why? Why are we to do that? Verse 45, you're to do that, verse 45, in order that you may become sons of your Father who's in heaven. So if you're a Christian, you're somebody who's been adopted into the family of God. And you prove that fact by loving like God loves. And God loves men, even his enemies. Right? God loves every man, friend or foe. So Jesus is saying, prove it, right? Pr 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 prove the fact that you are related to God in heaven, that he's actually your father in heaven, by truly loving like God loves, and a love that he extends to all men. Because God does have a general love for all men, right? For God so loved the, I'm sorry? It, it does not say the elect. I got that. It's a topic for a different day. God so loved the, world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever you want to come come right god has a general love for all men don't become a hyper calvinist be a biblicist god has a general love for all men for he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous so if you call yourself a christian if you call yourself one who 
claims to be a follower of Christ and one who walks with God, then you have to live your life that is in a distinguishingly different way than the world lives. And the world lives theirs. Verse 46. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Don't even the tax gatherers do the same? If you greet your brother only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's the standard. And it's completely unattainable on a natural level. It's completely unattainable to the natural man. It's impossible for him to meet. But nevertheless, it's the standard. It's God's standard. And God can't lower his standard. He can't lower, lower his standard of perfection. All right? Uh, he can't compromise his own perfection. Therefore, we're called to obey the perfect standard of God's righteousness. And the only way that you can do that is by being united to the person of Jesus Christ. The only way that you can live the standard that God commands of us is to be united to his son, to be in Christ and Christ in you. For he's done for you what you could not do. He's transformed and changed you from the inside out. And Christ in you can meet God's perfect standard, God's standard of perfection. And I think we've seen that principle all the way through the uh, 12th chapter of the book of Romans. God's calling in the 12th chapter of the book of Romans Christians to obey. Right? He's commanding us to live, Christians to live a certain fashion. And again, a fashion that is completely impossible for the natural man, the unredeemed man. You have to be born again. That, that's the issue. Right? So we, all of us have to have our focus off of ourselves and again on the Lord Jesus Christ. And each and every one of us have to be actively viewing all of our life through God's personal mercies to us. And you must be connected vitally to the person of Jesus Christ. Again, his life must be flowing through you. Right? His life must be flowing through you. So it's this others-oriented kind of love that Christ demonstrated, and it's this others-oriented kind of love how God has loved us while we were yet his enemies that we're called to demonstrate to others. Right? This is the kind of love that Christ demonstrated when, toward, towards those who were persecuting him. Right? 1 Peter 2.23 and while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, uh, he uttered no threat, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. So again, Romans 12 is about you call yourself a Christian, then you're going to need to do what? Live a Christian's life. Right? You need to live like Christ lived. Right? You need to live like Christ. Go back to Romans chapter 12. So again, what do you do with somebody? What do you do with somebody who wrongs you? What do you do with somebody who really does you wrong, who really does you evil? What's your response? And Paul is basically saying in this section, you, you, you need to demonstrate the fact that Christ is in you. You need to demonstrate the fact that you're in Christ. You need to be, demonstrate the fact that you've been transformed by his grace, by his mercy, by his love. You need to demonstrate the fact that you've been transformed and changed by his presence in your own life, in view of God's mercies in your own life. And if you have God's mercies in your own life, he says, don't act like a natural man. Don't do what you'd like to do instinctively in the flesh. Again, that's to hit back. Never pay back evil to anyone. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Now, let me ask you a question. What do you think never might mean in the Greek? Now, what I'm about to say next is purely hypothetical, and it probably happens in other churches. But let's just say hypothetically, 
your wife, your husband snaps unkindly at you. Again, it's just hypothetical. Your wife, your husband says something unkind, snaps harshly. You can either hit them right back or not. Right? You have that choice. You can either hit them right back or not. You can choose to, look at the text, never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Now, it's pretty tough. It's a pretty tall order. It seems like it's something completely impossible to do. And in our own flesh, it is. By our own effort, it is. But it is possible in Christ. Newsflash, you can control yourself. Right? You can't control yourself, especially in Christ. Now, I didn't say it was easy, but it is possible in Christ. With Christ helping us, with Christ encouraging us, with us looking at life, all of life, every single situation in view of the mercies of God in our own life, that's how we interact with everybody around us. Never paying back evil for evil to anyone. Then Paul goes on and says this. He says, respect what is right in the sight of all men. Now, each of the translations, it's interesting, each of the translations says something just a little bit different. Uh, um, ESV. But give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Uh, King James says, provide things honest in the sight of all men. Uh, NIV, be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. Uh, New King James, have regard for good things in the sight of all men. So, so why is that? Why are there all these kind of like variations on this one uh, verse here? Well, it has to, way to do, has to, way to do with the way the, the text is translated from the Greek into the English. The NAS translates the first word in the sentence as respect. And, and that's probably not the best translation at this case uh, to get the best understanding. The Greek word here means to perceive before or see ahead, uh, think beforehand, uh, take thought of, care for, uh, uh, careful thought uh, in, in advance. And what Paul is really saying is you need to take a thought in advance. You need to think beforehand, think before you act. The next word in the sentence is callous, which just means right. A beautiful, uh, excellent, eminent choice. Uh, various translations say honorable, honest, right, good. So what Paul is saying, look, as Christians, we need to stop and think about what we're going to do in advance. We need to stop and think what, how we're going to act beforehand. We're going to stop and consider how we're going to act before we find ourselves in a situation that may tempt us to act in an instinctive matter. Is that, that's what he's saying, right? You understand that. Think in advance, right? Respect what is right. Give heed. Be careful. Do what is right. So Paul's just said, look, we're not to retaliate uh, in evil uh, in a fleshly manner when somebody does evil against us. But we're going to stop in advance and we're going to think about the whole situation and we're going to consider how we're going to act if we find ourselves in this kind of a situation. That's what he's saying. And having considered in advance what we're going to do when we're treated evilly, what we're going to do, we're going to do the honorable, honest, right thing. And again, in the sight of all men. He's saying you're doing it visibly. right? A, a visible goodness in view of all men. So Paul's not saying, look, we want to do what all men might think is right. We're not, we're not, gonna, we're not doing that. We're not, all other men might think is right. But we're going to do the right thing. 
We're viewing God's mercies in our life. Somebody does us evil. What are we going to do? We're going to think in advance, and we're going to do the right thing. We're going to do the godly thing, the honorable thing, the good thing. And we do it in front of all men so they might see Christ in us. That's the reason. Because we're always thinking about us. We're always thinking about our testimony. Paul says, look, when we're treated unfairly, we're treated evilly. We're going to respond in a moment, not as the world would respond. We're not going to respond externally, but with an internal transformed life, transformed heart, we're going to respond the way Christ would respond. The way Christ, in fact, responded to his persecutors. And instead of paying evil back for evil, because Christ lives within us, we're going to demonstrate that before a watching world, Christ's goodness. We're going to demonstrate before a watching world, Christ's goodness in us so they can see Christ in us. Again, we're going to do that in the sight of all men. Or we're, going to make every, uh, we're going to make our life evident before a watching world that there's something different. We're going to make it evident that we're not like them. We're not like the fallen world. That we actually belong to another. That Christ really is indeed in us. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone, Paul says. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. Say, look, when someone treats you wrongly, don't think of yourself, but in advance, having already thought through the issue, actively demonstrate the fact that Christ is in you. Do the right thing. Do the good thing. Don't retaliate. Right? Do the right thing in the full view of all men. Uh, Christ said uh, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 14, uh, you, you're familiar with this. He says, you are the light of the world. Again, he didn't say go be. He said you are. This is who you are. This is who you are as a follower of Christ. You're the light of the world. You're a city set on the hill that cannot be what? Hidden. Can't be hidden. Nor do men light a lamp and put it under the peck measure, uh, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good work and glorify your Father who's in heaven. Guess what? Everybody's watching. Everybody's watching. People are watching you. Here's the next word, always. People are watching you always. They want to see how you respond. They want to see if your <clears throat> uh, life actually matches up to the profession of your lips, right? The watching world says, well, look, talk's cheap. Let's see some action. Let's see you put it into practice who you say you, say you are. If you really say that you're a new creation in Christ, a new creature in Christ, if you're saying that Christ really lives in you, then let's see it by how you respond to the situation. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. The NIV again says, be careful to do what is right in the sight of everybody. Now again, make sure we understand he's not saying, like everybody does today, Paul's not saying, look, let's take a public opinion poll to how we're going to respond to this thing, right? Determine what the right thing to do by popular vote. He's saying, look, we have to think about our public, our public testimony in advance before we find ourselves in a situation. Have I read anywhere that we live in a hostile world? Have I read anywhere that the whole world is under the power of the evil one? Have I, had, have I read anywhere that said we should expect conflict? In it? Have, I, have I read that? Have you guys read that anywhere? Right, so it's not like it's a surprise. Man, I didn't know I was going to be mistreated and people are going to be mean to me in, in a fallen world that hates God and hates Christ. I'm so surprised by this, right? So that's why when he says think about it in advance, it's not like an ethereal concept that we shouldn't have been thinking about in, in the past. He said, look, you should expect it. It's coming. All who desire to live godly lives in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So how do you respond? How do you respond to people treat you uh, harshly? Because somebody's always watching, right? And what Paul is saying is, look, we're to practically live out the gospel. We're to be careful to avoid doing anything that might bring 
a reproach upon the gospel and anything that might bring a reproach upon the person of Jesus Christ. So we're to live out our lives to prove, to show, to demonstrate, to establish that we are indeed children of the living God, that we're God's people. You've heard that it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you and do good to them that hate you and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you, that you may prove that you are children of your Father who is in heaven. Again, it's a completely different mindset, completely different action than the world around us. The world says somebody do, do, does you harm, then you double down and do them worse, right? That's not what Christ says. So Christ says the complete opposite. Now, I recently read a story, just this last week, in fact, of two Chinese terrace farmers. So guys that are farming on the side of a hill, right? All right, terrace, one higher, one lower. And the farmer who was up on the top uh, was a Christian, and he'd get up early at work and pump water up to, by hand, up to his uh, uh, crops. But there was an unscrupulous neighbor who lived below him who would always go up and cut a path through his dike and let the water flow down to the lower field. And it happened more than once, and the Christian farmer uh, was irritated by his lazy neighbor. But rather than going and yelling at his neighbor, the Christian farmer started, when he got up in the morning, he started pumping water into his neighbor's lower field first, and then his own. And as a result of that, the lazy neighbor uh, came under conviction and went to the Christian and apologized. And then he had an opportunity, <clears throat> the Christian did, to witness about Christ, and that second guy came to faith in Christ. Right? There's no better way to show the world that you actually are truly changed from the inside out, and shall actually transformed, and believe, uh, 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 transformed by the person of Jesus Christ than not to respond that the, the way the world responds is when they treat you poorly. Natural man can't do that. Natural man responds with evil or to evil with evil. A converted man, one who is a partaker of the divine nature, one who has Christ living within him, can demonstrate that fact. If he stops, takes a breath, says the issue in the world, guess what? I'm not the center of the universe. Christ is. I represent him. I need to be thinking about these things in advance. <clears throat> I need to be thinking about guarding my testimony because I want to guard the integrity of the person of Jesus Christ. So how do I do this when it happens? Now, what happens if you've already blown it, right? <clears throat> what happens if you got crazy with somebody and your neighbor and he's not a believer? Here's what you should do. You go humble yourself. That's simple. You go humble yourself the person, against the person you wronged. You ask for forgiveness. Then you walk away. Humble yourself. Ask for forgiveness. Walk away. Don't try to use your apology as an opportunity to witness to them because they think, maybe, well, he just came to apologize so he can cram some more quote-unquote religious stuff down my throat, right? Ask for forgiveness, apologize, walk away, then pray the Lord to give you future opportunities to allow that person to ask you about your faith. Because the history of Christianity and throughout the history of the Christian church, many men who've humbled themselves before others who they have wronged by that man choosing not to retaliate or, or uh, when wronged or going back and humbling himself when he was the offender, uh, God has used those kind of situations uh, to draw men to Christ drum into himself. Many examples of uh, uh, God's people uh, that have been treated poorly or even being martyred. Uh, Christians uh, 
full of Christ, full of the Holy Spirit, have chosen not to act in the flesh, but have chosen uh, to react in kindness, uh, even to the persecutors. Many men have been taken back by that fact. Even as they're putting Christians to death, seeing how Christians respond, many men and women, persecutors of Christians, have come to faith in Christ because of the testimony of the person who's in the fire, so to speak. I think that was one of the um, uh, contributing factors to Saul's conversion, right? Saul of Tarsus, the Apostle Paul. Because he was there and actively participated in the death of Stephen. And Paul saw this godly man, Stephen, respond to his persecutors, and he called out to the Lord not to curse them, but Stephen called out to God and prayed for them that God would be merciful to them. And I think that had to make an impact on Paul, uh, Paul, Saul's life, Paul's life. I think Saul must have stopped in his tracks, uh, so to speak, and started to think about these people who called themselves Christians, <clears throat> these people whom he was persecuting. He had to think something on the lines of what in the world is wrong with these people. What makes them different? What makes them love like they love? What makes them love even those who are putting them to death? Perhaps there is something different about them, something that is unique about these people called Christians. These people who follow Christ. They're like him, kind, loving, merciful, even in the face of their tormentors. Now, I, I'm, I'm assuming that that had to run through Saul's mind at some point. The reality of the fact is, I said it earlier, but people are always watching us. People are always watching us to live our testimony before a watching world, therefore, in a way that honors Christ and doesn't bring reproach upon the gospel or reproach upon Christ. First, <clears throat> First Thessalonians 5.15, <clears throat> see that... No one repays another with evil for evil, but always seek that after that which is good for one another and for all men. Again, never repay evil for evil. Paul goes on and says this in verse 18. He says, if it's possible, as far as it depends with you, be at peace with all men. Now, good, the, 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 the Bible is not a book that doesn't live in reality, right? It deals with reality. God is not calling us to do the impossible here, but he's calling us to live in peace, a life of peace, in view of uh, sobering realism in a fallen world, in, in view of the cross, again, we're men sitting at the foot of the cross, we're looking at the cross, the mercy of God's in our own life, the mercy of God in our own life, um, and, and we uh, want to live with wisdom that is godly wisdom, not worldly wisdom, um, but we understand reality in a fallen world. Paul says, look, if you're truly in Christ, then you're going to be seeking peace. You're going to be attempting to maintain peace between God's people and all people, if possible. But the sobering truth, again, in a fallen world, that's not always possible. It's not always possible to be at peace with all men. But look what he says, as far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. From your side of the equation, set your mind on peace, pursue peace, live in peace. Unless men make it impossible for you to do so. Because, again, the stark reality of living in a fallen world, there are people in this world who live in such a way that peace with them is absolutely impossible. So, again, when Paul says, if it's possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men, he's not calling us to peace at any price, but rather he's calling us to live, again, wisely in the world. Deal with other men wisely. 
And when you deal with other men, there are two potential sources of difficulty. Uh, one, uh, sometimes uh, uh, the behavior of other men makes it completely impossible to live in peace. And secondly, there may be some issue at stake that makes peace an impossibility. Again, from the side of the Christian. So again, if it's possible, pursue peace. Right? Be peacemakers as far as it depends on, on you. Uh, we must never, Paul says, we must never be the problem, the cause of the problem. Uh, again, it's not a call for peace at any price because the truth can never be sacrificed. Right? We don't sacrifice truth just to maintain peace. We don't sacrifice purity to maintain peace. Right? We don't sacrifice injustice to maintain peace. Again, remember what James says, James 3.17, the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable. So purity has a prior commitment for the Christian than peace. Purity has a prior commitment for the Christian than peace. Truth, honor, justice, those things come before peace. You, 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 the, the pacifists, so-called, uh, oh, peace, 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 no matter what. No, 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 pure. Wisdom from above is pure. We don't compromise truth. We don't compromise uh, honor. We don't compromise uh, uh, things that are impure, right? We don't, just, to, just to get along. Again, we live in a fallen world with fallen men, wicked men all around us, evil men. And we are to resist evil, not bow down to evil. We're to resist evil. We're to resist unrighteous individuals, even at times to the point of armed conflict. And Paul recognizes that in the next chapter, chapter 13. God has given government the right of the sword, right, to deal with evil men. Right? God has raised up government to protect people from those in a society as, as, such as ours that are evil because there are evil men everywhere. So again, God has given the government the power to bear the sword as a minister of the, as an avenger of God to bring wrath, God's wrath, upon those who practice evil. So again, with regards to the truth, the New Testament never calls us to compromise with those who are in error, but really expose them and have nothing to do with them. Paul says, Ephesians 5, 11, do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but even expose them. Titus 3.10, we are to reject the factious man after a first and second warning. Jude, uh, verse 3 says that we must uh, contend earnestly for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. I said it a few weeks ago, uh, but I'll say it again. The greatest, form of, the greatest uh, form of wickedness in the entire world is the perversion of God's truth. That's the fountain from which all error comes. It's the perversion of God's truth. The second half of that statement is the greatest wickedness on earth is the perversion of God's truth and most of the church could care less. Sad reality, sad commentary on the church today in which we live, but that's reality because people don't honor the truth, obey the truth, fight for the truth. Jude says, contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. There's one body of truth, one body of knowledge, and there's always a battle over it. Well, we're just going to set aside truth and get along because we're going to fight this cultural battle or this cultural issue. Culture's going to come and go. People who don't repent and place their faith in Christ are going to die and they're going to face eternal judgment. We don't compromise the truth for anything. God's word is truth. So again, Paul says, look, if it's possible with you or so far as it depends upon you, be at peace with all men. 
Live peaceably with all. Live at peace with everyone, a couple other translations say. Again, whether individuals or nations, peace is always a two-way street. Peace cannot just be one-sided. As Christians, we have to make sure we do everything that within our power to live at peace. And we must be willing to forgive those who offend us and willing to set aside any grudge to those who have wronged us, desiring to see that reconciliation might take place. But in a fallen world, it's not always possible. And there's some things that need to be standed, stood up against and resisted, and evil is always to be resisted. Always. There you go. There's the first one. Right? The first one. How to deal with somebody who, who's your enemy. Be a peacemaker. Do whatever is within your power as far as it depends upon you to be at peace with all men. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Be careful and do what's right in the eyes of the world that is watching you always. Live your life in a manner that is radically different from those in the world around you who don't know Christ. And when Christ is in us, living in us, and living through us, and when we're walking in the power of the Holy Spirit, when we have our focus upon the Christ and upon God's mercies towards us in Christ, in view of the cross, then we can live that principle out. We can live as the Prince of Peace lived, but again, only when we have our eyes on Him, on the Savior, the one who came to this earth from heaven, put on our flesh, bore our sin, that we might have peace with God. That's good for now. We'll pick up the rest, Lord willing, next time, and we'll finish out the, the rest of the chapter. All right? Our Father in heaven, we're so thankful for our time together in Romans chapter 12. Thankful for our study here to live according to uh, who we are in Christ by the power that you've given to us as those indwelt by the person of the Holy Spirit. We're redeemed, transformed, changed, made new. And we're so thankful for the time we spent this morning as we looked at your word and saw the amazing reality of the cross and the darkness that came upon Christ as you judged sin and poured out wrath upon him that we deserve. We stand in awe of you, of your mercy, your goodness, your amazing love. Again, how can it be that you, our God, would die for sinners like us? But you have, and you've reconciled us to yourself. You brought us into your family. You've made us part of, uh, of the eternally redeemed, and we love you for that. We just pray that you'd help us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling by which we've been called. We pray that you'd help us to love you more and to love those around us, to be reminding to the fact that we are lights on a hill, salt of the earth, we live in a manner that's pleasing to you and brings glory to your Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. In his name I pray. Amen.